Welcome to Episode 3 of the California Slap Law Podcast. Today we'll discuss a case I just handled in order to examine certain anti-slap procedures and strategies. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast, where I read the cases so you don't have to. My name is Aaron Morris, a partner with the law firm of Morris & Stone. I'm always happy to take your defamation and anti-slap questions at 714-954-0700. Again, that's 714-954-0700. And you can also find me at californiaslaplaw.com. This week's show pretty much wrote itself based on an interesting and or fun anti-slap matter we're handling over at Morrison Stone. The matter raised some of the normal procedural issues that surround an anti-slap motion and therefore provides a really good springboard for a discussion of anti-slap procedures. In this case, we're stuck in a department in Los Angeles Superior Court where the judge does the routine where she only allows so many law and motion matters on her weekly calendar. And once that's full, it moves on to the next week. As a result, I filed my anti-slap motion in October of last year, and the first hearing date was in February of this year, almost five months to have a motion heard. I'm going to step up on my soapbox for a minute if you'll just bear with me, but stick with me because it leads to a pretty good practice pointer. I get it. Times are tough in Los Angeles County. The courts have had big budget cuts and lost staff members. But in any job, you roll with the punches. If an attorney in your office goes out sick, you all pitch in to cover the caseload. Don't be the sort of judge who says, I work nine to five, and if you don't give me the people I need, then all the attorneys and all their clients can damn well wait six months to have a motion heard and three years to get to trial. No, judge, you might have to roll up your sleeves and pull a few late nights until the economy turns around. Okay, off my soapbox, but here is the practice pointer I promised. There are two deadlines that come into play when you're bringing an anti-slap motion. The first deadline is that you have 60 days from the date of service of the complaint to file the anti-slap motion. If you're past the 60 days, the court can grant leave to file a motion upon a showing of good cause. And if an amended complaint is filed, that starts the clock ticking again. And that leads us to our first bit of strategery, as Bush would say. So let me repeat that again. If a plaintiff files an amended complaint at any time during the litigation, that resets the clock and the defendant has 60 days to file an anti-slap motion from service of that amended complaint. The 60 days is extended according to the method of service. So you get 65 days if the amended complaint was served by mail. Now, my repeated mantra, my repeated theme here is, In these cases of abusive anti-slap motions, you must always keep the slap laws firmly in mind whenever you make a litigation decision. Let me give you a hypothetical. You filed an action for whatever, and the defendant, knowing that he owes money to your client, has instructed his attorney to delay, delay, delay. You're eight months into the action, and discovery reveals that some additional damages are due, so you bring a motion to amend to allege those additional damages. Well, by doing that, you have just presented the defendant with a perfect opportunity to delay the case for as much as three years. I have an appeal right now pending in San Bernardino County that was fully briefed more than two years ago. 
I just received a notice that the appeal has been moved from San Diego County or has been moved to San Diego County so the oral argument can finally go forward. I didn't even know they could do that. The first time it's ever come up in my practice. If you amend your complaint and there is any conceivable basis for an anti-slap motion, you have just presented defendant with a tremendous opportunity for delay. Now, if you heard last week's show, I gave the example of one of my cases where we were about two years into the case, and on the eve of trial, opposing counsel brought a motion for leave to file a late anti-slap motion. When the court denied the motion, the defendant filed an appeal to that order, claiming it was the same as denying an anti-slap motion, and therefore triggered the automatic right of appeal. Now, I got that one thrown out immediately by the Court of Appeal by filing a motion, but it shows you the level of abuse regarding anti-slap motions as a means to cause delay. Here is the strategy I've come up to deal with these sort of situations. It involves the distinction between a motion to amend and a motion to supplement. This comes up often in my defamation practice. There is this weird phenomenon that comes over people when they sit down to write a review about a business. Uh, I recently had a case that uh, where I represented a plastic surgeon. We were suing for false reviews posted on Yelp by one of his patients. Now, the patient was unhappy with the result of her surgery, so she took to Yelp to bash the doctor. Now, if she had posted a true accounting of her experience with the doctor, I would have fought to the death her right to post that review. But here's the phenomenon that takes over. The reviewer is really mad at the business, so they write a true review about the experience, and then when they read the review, they realize it's just not stinging enough. They feel like with that review, people might still do business with this business, so they they need to do something about it. So that's when they start to embellish. In the case of our plastic surgeon, the defendant added that he had been sued for malpractice many times. It simply wasn't true. She then said that she had contacted the medical board and was advised that the doctor's license was being revoked. That simply wasn't true. And my favorite one was, I mean, she really had to go a distance for this one. She wrote in a review that she went to see a lawyer about suing the doctor for malpractice. And when she went in and was sitting in the waiting room of the lawyer's office, she got to talking with the other uh, people that were in the waiting room and discovered that there were four other women in that waiting room all there looking to sue this doctor. Well, that's amazing. I mean, this guy must be a butcher. Out of all the law offices in the area, four, well, make that five patients were in that lawyer's office wanting to sue that doctor. It was completely ridiculous, of course, but that's the kind of nonsense that takes over people when they sit down to write these reviews. And then she was obviously bothered by all the positive Yelp reviews the doctor had and and was no doubt concerned that her one negative review would be lost among all the positive reviews. So she went on and created three new identities and posted negative reviews under those identities, making up new scenarios for each. That's a concept I sometimes have trouble getting judges to understand. If you create a second identity in order to post a second negative review, that review is per se defamatory, even if what it says is true, because you have created the false impression that two people had a negative experience with the business, when in fact it was only one. Ultimately, I've always been able to get the judges to understand that, what seems to me to be irrefutable logic, but sometimes I have to drag them kicking and screaming into the light. When we serve someone like that with the defamation complaint, sometimes it just fans the flames. It doesn't matter how false the reviews were. The First Amendment says I can say whatever I want to say, and damn it, no one is going to tell me otherwise. So the defendant goes back onto Yelp and posts even more defamatory comments about the plaintiff. 
we have to bring those additional defamatory comments into the complaint or they will not be part of the action and we'd have to sue all over again. And whenever we sue for defamation, we always get injunctive relief that requires the defendant to remove the postings and the judge can't order the postings removed unless they are part of the allegations. And by the way, in in case you're thinking back to law school and thinking of prior restraint and how that's unconstitutional, you can get injunctive relief uh, to have postings removed after they've been found to be defamatory because defamatory speech is never protected. So how do I add these subsequent defamatory postings to my complaint without triggering defendant's ability to bring an anti-slap motion? By bringing a motion to supplement as opposed to a motion to amend. Many attorneys and judges do not appreciate the distinction, but it is crucial in this context. Section 425.16F states, quote, The special motion may be filed within 60 days of the service of the complaint. Now, notice that didn't say anything about amended complaints. That came in through case law. An amended complaint is served on the defendant, so the courts reasoned that it starts the 60-day clock ticking again. A motion to supplement, on the other hand, does not involve service of a new complaint. I don't add any causes of action. I just file a motion setting forth the new allegations that I want inserted into the existing complaint. If the motion is granted, they are deemed to be part of the complaint. No new complaint is ever created. No new complaint is ever served, and no 60-day clock is ever started. This theory of mine is supported by the fact that, as held in Lee v. Bank of America, an amended complaint supersedes all prior complaints, whereas a supplemented complaint does not. As stated in Weil and Brown, a supplemented complaint simply adds new allegations to be considered in conjunction with the original. Please note that there is no case law, thus far at least, that has discussed the distinction between an amended complaint and a supplemented complaint in the anti-slap context. This is just my own strategy. But so far, it has always worked. And here is my hope if someday a defendant brings an anti-slap motion after I bring a motion to supplement. I will bring a motion in the Court of Appeal to dismiss the appeal on the grounds that it is beyond the 60 days and permission was not granted. And at least I will have a shot at avoiding the delay of a long appeal, whereas if I just amended the complaint, I would not have that opportunity. So we talked about the first anti-slap motion deadline, that's the 60 days to file the motion, and why you must think carefully before amending your complaint, and the use of a motion to supplement as a means to avoid triggering the 60-day deadline all over again. So let's move now to the second deadline. The motion has to be heard within 30 days of service of the motion. That is another of the anti-slap statute safeguards. The defendant is being slapped and harassed with this lawsuit, so we want to get the matter heard quickly. But here is the key point as to the 30-day deadline. CCP section 425.16F, again, states that it is the burden of the court clerk, not the defense counsel, to set the motion within 30 days. Specifically, the code section reads, The motion shall be scheduled by the clerk of the court for a hearing not more than 30 days after the service of the motion, unless the docket conditions of the court require a later hearing. But even though it is the clerk's burden to schedule the hearing within 30 days, Barack v. Cuisenberry Law Firm held that it is the moving party's burden to show that the condition of the docket required a later hearing. Now, let me give you a little history. And what I'm about to tell you is bad law, so keep that in mind because it was subsequently uh, overruled. The 3rd District Court of Appeal, in a case called Fair Political Practices Commission versus American Civil Rights Coalition, held that the 30-day deadline was jurisdictional, and then came up with this, what can only be described as a crazy scheme. 
The court found that since the code section requires that the hearing on the anti-slap motion must be scheduled not more than 30 days after service of the complaint, then the solution is simple. The court said, well, you just file the motion, take whatever date the court gives you for the hearing, and then hold off on serving the motion until you're within 30 days of that hearing. How ridiculous is that? Dear defense counsel, I've served you with three rounds of discovery. Why haven't you answered? Well, it's certainly not because I filed an anti-slap, so don't even think that I filed an anti-slap. Dear defense counsel, I see from the docket that you filed an anti-slap motion. Can I have a copy so I can begin preparing my opposition? No, that might be construed as service, so no copy for you until we're within 30 days of the hearing. The court even stated that defendant could go in ex parte to seek an earlier date, but this simple procedure of holding off on serving the motion was a much easier solution and wouldn't waste court resources. Now, interestingly, the attorney in that case had filed a declaration stating that when he called for a hearing date, the court was setting hearings after the 30-day period. The court held that declaration was insufficient to show that the hearing could not have been scheduled sooner because the attorney could have pursued an ex parte application and might have been granted leave to to have the hearing set within the 30 days. Fair Political Practices Commission was decided in 2004 and in 2006, Section 425.16, subsection F, was amended specifically to overrule that case and another case called Decker versus UD registration. So let's get out of the past and back to the present and current law. You're trying to file an anti-slap motion. You know that the burden is on the clerk to set the hearing within 30 days, but the burden is still on you to show that the clerk couldn't do it. So how do you meet that burden of showing that the docket was so jammed that you couldn't get it set within 30 days to make sure that your motion is not thrown out for being heard after 30 days? Well, here's my patented technique that has never let me down. You will encounter one of three situations when you go to schedule your hearing on the anti-slap motion. First, there's still some courts out there, believe it or not, that just let you set the date. As long as you give sufficient notice, you can you can set the hearing date uh, whenever you want it to be. Obviously, if you're in that jurisdiction, set it within the 30 days, of course. However, sometimes you'll file the motion with your hearing date set, and you'll get it back with the date crossed out, and the clerk has set it for a later date because of the backlog in that particular department. If that happens, you'll need to use the method we'll be discussing in just a moment. The second situation that will arise is where the court uses the old method where you pick up a phone and call the clerk to clear a hearing date. If the court uses the system where you call the clerk to reserve the hearing date, then of course you're going to do so. And if you're given a date that is later than the 30 days, explain to the clerk that you're bringing an anti-slap motion and that you need the hearing within 30 days. She will probably tell you that you're the seventh la-di-da attorney of the day who has told her that their motion is so important that it has to be heard right away and will refuse your request. Thank her for whatever date she gave you and get her name. By the way, I'm sensitive to any gender biases. I recognize that there are, of course, male clerks, but it gets cumbersome to repeatedly say, get his or her name or ask the clerk for an earlier date if the clerk denies your request and then get the clerk's name. I get around that problem by choosing genders at random. So given that I'm choosing genders at random, if you're bothered by the fact that the clerk happens to be female, is that my bias or yours? Really think about it. So the final situation is where the court has installed an online service. This is very popular these days where you don't even speak to the clerk. You just go online and the the service, the, the, the court docket will tell you when the next available court date is. You sign up for it and that's your court date. So if you're using that kind of a system and the date assigned is after the 30 days, uh, you need to call the clerk. 
He, you see what I did there? He will likely tell you that you're the seventh la-di-da attorney of the day who thought that their motion is so important that they were somehow exempt from the online scheduling requirement and will refuse your request. Thank the clerk for his time and get the clerk's name. So under any of our scenarios, we have our anti-slap motion ready to be filed, but the hearing date will be after the 30 days. As is my case up in Los Angeles County Central, it was five months after the 30 days. So what do you do? First, attach a declaration to the motion that specifies your efforts. Identify the clerk that you spoke to and make clear that you tried to get the hearing set within 30 days, but it just wasn't possible. If that's all you do, you'll probably be okay about 98% of the time, but I'm not content with a 2% risk. On at least one occasion, I was sitting in court uh, listening to an attorney attempt to argue an anti-slap motion, and the judge denied the anti-slap motion for lack of timeliness, claiming it was the attorney's burden to come into court with a motion to set. The judge held that a declaration about the DACA conditions was not enough. So there, there are still judges out there that put a heavy burden on the attorney bringing the motion to prove that they could not possibly get this motion heard within 30 days. So to take care of that remaining 2% of risk, you can do just what those judges want and bring an ex-party application to move up the date of the hearing. I've done that a few times. I used to do that routinely when this would arise. And the request is always denied, but then I'm safe because I tried and I can attach a declaration saying, Your Honor, I came in here ex parte. I tried to get this date moved up. You just were not willing to do so, but I've done everything I could possibly do. And there's really no way the judge can refute that. But there's a much easier way. And this is, this is my technique that I use. Go ahead and proceed as though you're going to bring the ex parte application. But before you spend the time preparing your papers, go ahead and send your notice of the ex parte hearing to opposing counsel. But explain in your notice to opposing counsel that the only reason you're going in ex parte is because the court is setting hearings after the 30-day deadline. State that the hearing will not be necessary if opposing counsel will just agree that the motion can be heard after the 30 days. Now, do you think opposing counsel will agree to your proposal? In my experience, they've agreed every single time. The reason is not because they are so generous or accommodating, but it is in their own self-interest. There is simply no basis to fight the motion. What would they say in the opposition? No, Your Honor, you can't hear this motion when it's required to be heard. The ex-party application is just a formality to put the court on notice that you tried to move it up. When opposing counsel agrees, I don't bother doing a formal stipulation. I just send an email to opposing counsel to make opposing counsel's life as easy as possible. They only need to reply to the email confirming that they do not object to having the motion heard after the 30 days. This protects you even without a formal stipulation because a case called Greca Integrated Inc. versus Lowry held that a party who consents to having the matter heard after the 30 days cannot object on that basis. So now when I file my anti-slap motion, I attach a declaration setting forth my efforts to get the hearing set within 30 days. I give the name of the clerk that I spoke to. And I authenticate the email from opposing counsel, which states that there is no objection to having the motion heard after 30 days. I also then pull in a boilerplate discussion of the procedural rules into the points and authorities, explaining why the court cannot find the motion to be untimely since opposing counsel agreed. As I said, opposing counsel has agreed every time. I mean, why wouldn't they? I'm asking them simply to agree to the later hearing date already set by the court. If they refuse to agree, then they are saying, no, I I want you to go to court and try to get an earlier hearing date so I will have less time to prepare my opposition. When I play poker, we have this little routine. If you're throwing in chips on a long shot bet, maybe you're trying to draw to an inside straight or waiting for the last card of the flop, you utter the words stupid poker. 
it, it's sort of a way to save face so that when you lose the hand and the other players realize you were going for the inside straight or waiting for the last card of the flop, you've already acknowledged that you knew it was stupid poker. Of course, sometimes you also say it as a bluff so they don't know whether you're telling the truth or not. The point of this story is if opposing counsel denies your request to agree to the later hearing date on the anti-slap motion, well, that would just be stupid poker. I'm getting so far off point here that I'm probably going to need a map to find my way back, but here's another quick war story with a good practice pointer. I'm just full of them today. Long ago in a galaxy far away, there was a procedure on appeal regarding the reporter's transcript. The attorney for the appellant would file the notice of appeal and would then designate and pay for the reporter's transcript. As the attorney for respondent, you'd get a form from the reporter saying that the transcript is done, and if you want a copy, here's how much you have to pay for it. So one time I received the opening brief from counsel for appellants, and I realized I'd never seen the form and did not have a copy of the reporter's transcript. Now, that's that's no big deal. In fact, on, on some occasions, I would elect not to get a copy to save the client a few bucks and just review it at the court of appeal or send someone to copy just the relevant parts that I needed. But anyway, I realized I didn't have the transcript, so I asked one of my contract attorneys to call the opposing counsel and ask if we could borrow the transcript while we prepared our responsive brief. She responded, he'll never do that. I thought that was odd. I asked, why not? It's not like he's going to be using the transcript in the interim. Why wouldn't he let us borrow the copy? And she said, because I wouldn't. Do you see how sad that is? The fact that we had no copy of the transcript offered no strategic advantage to the other side. I could review it at the courthouse or just have a copy made. We were just asking for a little professional courtesy. They, for their part, might want a little extra time to prepare their reply, and I would be obliged to return the favor. That's how professionals should behave. By the way, the contract attorney called opposing counsel, and he said, no problem, just send over your messenger, and we'll leave it with the receptionist. So there is some civility still remaining in the profession. So here's the practice tip in case you don't do a lot of appeals. The legislature thought my idea was such a good one that now appellant's counsel is required to provide you with their copy of the transcript. It's a great system because the appellant is the one who has a problem with the judgment, so they should bear the cost of the transcript. The respondent can save all that money and just borrow the transcript from appellant's counsel when it comes time to do the brief. And along that same line, here's an obscure rule having to do with summary judgment motions that I love springing on opposing counsel. Nothing to do with anti-slap motions, but I assume you're all litigators, so you might be interested. If you're served with a motion for summary judgment, it used to be a nightmare taking that separate statement you got from opposing counsel, separate statement of undisputed facts, and creating your own responsive statement of disputed and undisputed facts. You had to go through all of their undisputed facts and create your own separate statement and then respond to each one. Well, don't do that anymore. I just call opposing counsel and say, you know, I'm not really in the mood to recreate your statement of undisputed facts. Why don't you just email me over your electronic version so I can use that? It doesn't happen as often as it used to, but I still get attorneys who say, what? I'm not going to give you my Word document. Are you crazy? Actually, they're required to give me the electronic version. I quote them the rule, and they email me the electronic version of their separate statement. makes it a lot easier. I can just call theirs up and add our responses to their statements. And here's a little bit of fun for we Luddites who still use WordPerfect. Under the rule, you're only required to produce the electronic form of the separate statement in the form you created it. When I get the request for my separate statement, I send over my WordPerfect file and they go crazy trying to convert it to Word. I still have my very first computer, um, which still works. It's It was, a, well, it still is an Osborne. Uh, I don't know if you remember Osborne's. There's no hard drive. They use those big uh, five and a quarter floppies. Uh, it came with a program called WordStar, 
I think I'll do my next separate statement in WordStar. Oh, opposing counsel, you want the electronic version of my separate statement? Here it is in WordStar, or maybe Multimate. Or I could get an old Commodore 64. Sorry, counsel, my Commodore 64 doesn't have email capabilities, but I can messenger over the cartridge with a separate statement on it. I'm definitely going to do that the next time I get a request so I can just see the reaction. I have uh, an opposing counsel in one of my cases who still types all his court documents. And I don't mean that he types them into a word processor. He types his documents. He has an IBM Selectric or something. If he ever brings a motion for summary judgment, I guess he'll have the last laugh because there, there won't be an electronic version. Leaving the road even further, if you do use WordPerfect, Corel just came out with an iPad version. It links to your Dropbox. It's really nice to finally be able to edit WordPerfect documents on my iPad. And in fact, at the time I'm saying this, the app is free. So if you hate Word as much as I do and still use WordPerfect, get over to the App Store. I don't know if there's a WordStar for iPad app. So as you may recall, we were discussing this week's interesting and or fun anti-slap case at Morrison Stone. I filed the anti-slap motion in October. The hearing was set for February. So I used the aforesaid technique to get the other side to agree that the hearing could be five months after service. So there's no problem in that regard. And the anti-slap motion was finally heard and granted in February of this year. Now, as an anti-slap exercise, let me tell you a little bit about that case. In that case, the plaintiff was representing himself and had filed an action against my client. And here's the facts of the case. In 1999, the plaintiff had filed an EEOC claim against his employer. Let me say that again. In 1999, the plaintiff had filed an EEOC complaint against his employer. My client was interviewed by the EEOC and the EEOC found no basis for a discrimination claim. Now, 15 years later, the plaintiff decided it was my client's testimony to the EEOC that put the kibosh on his claim, so he sued my client for defamation. If ever there was a poster child for the wisdom of the anti-slap statute, this was it. Plaintiff showed up and argued at the hearing on the anti-slap motion, but the court, of course, granted my motion. I mean, that was, that was pretty much a no-brainer. Plaintiff asked if he could appeal, and the judge said, oh, yes, you have an automatic right of appeal, and and proceeded to basically walk him through the entire process. Really, judge, you couldn't have said something like, well, yes, you can appeal, but Mr. Jones, this case is so many years beyond any conceivable statute of limitation that you really should take a hard look at whether that would be a wise course of action, especially given that the attorney's fees will continue to accrue. I think that would have been more appropriate and wouldn't have spurred him on to file an appeal. So back to the procedure, following following a successful anti-slap motion, the defendant has 60 days from the notice of the ruling to file a motion for attorney's fees. There are actually three methods you can use to seek your attorney's fees. You can seek the attorney's fees at the same time as the anti-slap motion. The problem with that method is you're spending the time and your client's money to prepare your attorney fee motion before you have confirmation that you're even going to get attorney's fees. So that can be a waste. And yes, you may have every reason to believe that you will prevail on your anti-slap motion, but nothing is certain. Next, you could just wait until the end of the action and seek your attorney's fees. Why would you ever want to do that? Well, say, for instance, you're suing for breach of contract and the contract contains an attorney fees provision and assume further that the defendant in this contract action files a cross complaint that is a slap 
So you file and, and pursue and win a successful anti-slap motion. Under that scenario, is there really any advantage to going in and seeking your attorney's fees following the successful anti-slap motion? You're going to get them under the contract anyway, so you might as well wait until the end of the action and get them all at once. Now, you may decide for strategic reasons uh, that you want to bring the motion right away, but just be aware that you don't have to, and you can wait until the end of the action. As long as the action is proceeding, there's no there's no deadline. And finally, you can seek the motion for attorney's fees by separate motion after you prevail on the anti-slap motion. That's the way it's done most of the time. So as I said, I prevailed on the anti-slap motion and had 60 days from the date I filed the notice of ruling to file my motion for attorney's fees. That happens to be the exact amount of time the plaintiff has to file a notice of appeal. My client was, of course, anxious to get the motion filed so that he could get back his attorney's fees, but I prevailed on him to allow me to wait the 60 days. Because, you see, even though the court had practically gushed about the plaintiff's right of an appeal, I knew that he might not spring into action. And I also knew that if he received that motion for attorney fees within the 60 days, that was very likely to be a motivating factor that would cause him to file the notice of appeal. So I waited and filed and served the motion for attorney's fees on the 60th day. And sure enough, three days later, I received a call from Mr. Jones stating he was going to appeal if we didn't agree to waive the attorney fees. Sorry, Mr. Jones, too late. Of course, we would have won on appeal, but that's not the point. Why put my client through that inconvenience and expense when all I had to do was wait to file the motion? And incidentally, that's another factor to take into consideration if you're thinking about filing your motion for attorney fees in conjunction with the anti-slap motion itself. The consequences of the slap become much more real if you put the plaintiff on notice that he is facing attorney's fees. I, I would imagine that the chances of an appeal are greatly enhanced if you get an award of attorney fees at the same time that you bring your anti-slap motion. A lot of useful information in today's show, if I do say so myself. You know about the 60 and 30-day deadlines. You know an easy and efficient way to protect your anti-slap motion if the clerk won't set the hearing in 30 days or less. You know that it can be risky to amend the complaint and that using a motion to supplement might be a better bet. And we even discussed some tips for appeals and motions for summary judgment and a free WordPerfect app for your iPad. I kind of hate to hand this one to you Word users, but if you grab that free WordPerfect app for the iPad, when I do send you my separate statement in WordPerfect format, you can just open it in the app and then save it in Word format, thereby foiling my evil plan. So be sure to subscribe here and at californiaslaplaw.com, and that will keep you current on this important area of the law. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and try not to slap anyone.